earlier this week, I was driving to the church, and it was one of the nicer days of the week. We're kind of doing the yo-yo thing here in Aristic County, where we'll have one day that's like, ah, this is great, this is the end of winter, and then the next, no, (laughs) winter's back with a fury. But on one of those nicer days, I stopped my truck on the way over to the church. It was just a spur of the moment, a whim. And I took a walk through a cemetery. I had some difficult meetings that day, some people I need to get together with and talk about some things and, and just wanted to pray before I went over there, just have a time between me and God. And so I parked my truck and I walked in a cemetery mostly because uh, I knew I'd be alone and uninterrupted. But it ended up being really great preparation <laughs> for what we need to talk about this morning. It was early in the morning, and as the sun came up over the ridge east of town, it warmed the front of the grave markers. I could actually feel the heat of the sun bouncing off of the marble. And I was reminded of that line written by A.J. Gordon, which I'm fond of quoting at funerals. The grave is a narrow inn whose windows look toward the sun rising, where the sojourner sleeps till break of day. Most of the graves were very simple, just a name and two dates that bookended the days that had been given for them to live out under the sun. I was affected most emotionally by the graves of small children. The graves where the math was so tragically simple in deducing the age of the child who had died. But every kind of loss was represented there. Children had died and been buried by their parents. Parents had died and been buried by their children. Widows and widowers had gathered there, wiping tears on their sleeves. There were the war dead and those who survived wars but died nevertheless later, years later at a ripe old age. There were graves surrounded by others with the same surname and still others that stood alone. Some of the markers looked expensive. Others were so simple that there was, there was really no name, just initials, and the marker was half covered by grass because it didn't stand up above the turf, but had been laid flat on the ground. Here and there was evidence emerging from the melting snow that the graves were still frequented and remembered. Plastic flowers faded from the sun, little trinkets and statues, solar-powered lights. By the grave of one little boy, there was a toy tractor. Most of the markers were old, though, and probably hadn't been visited in a long, long while. The writing was worn away, difficult or impossible to read, and covered in lichen. Even the hard stone of these memorials were themselves decaying, crumbling, and falling down. This is the way of all things in this fallen world. Iron rusts, wood rots, our bodies fall apart. These grave markers were in a state of decay. Some grave markers bore testimony to the grief of those left behind. The family of one young father who died at the age of 36 had asked to have this put on his gravestone. How desolate our home without you. I paused with a creeping sense of horror as I put myself in the shoes of that family. What an honest sentiment. How desolate our home without you. Another placed in memory of a young mother who died when she was just 23 said she was the sunshine of our home. And these sad sentiments, so honest, so raw, reminded me of what Jesus said in John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And that's how these families felt. They felt stolen from. 
Something had been horribly destroyed. One gravestone erected for a man who died in 1936 at the age of 71 had native of Scotland neatly chiseled beneath the date of his death. That man had apparently wanted people to know where he'd come from, but most of the gravestones, if they spoke of anything beyond the name of the deceased and the date of their lives, wanted to point people to where they, not where they'd come from, but where they were going. Many said simply, asleep in Jesus. One said, he is not dead, he sleeps. Many of the markers bore Bible verses. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And last week, if you were with us, we left off in John 19 with Jesus uttering those famous words from the cross. It is finished. And then he died. And then what followed was something that we are all, sadly, very familiar with. There was crying and mourning. There were grieving family and friends. There were tears on sleeves. And there was a burial in a cemetery. Two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the Bible tells us, got permission from Pilate to take the body and they committed it to a tomb the body of Jesus. And that pattern of loss and burial and mourning is all too tragically familiar to us. But then something most unprecedented happened. The greatest, the most triumphant, and the happiest thing in the history of things was about to happen. And it did happen. The good news, no, the great news, that John is eager to spread abroad to anyone who has ever walked through a quiet cemetery or through the valley of the shadow of death or who has gotten horrible news from the doctor or who stood crying by the graveside of a loved one or who has ever feared death themselves is that death has been utterly defeated. Death is dead. And the great, amazing, awesome Easter news that I bring to you this morning is that I know someone who went into the grave and came out again permanently. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, this is speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, th who through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery to the fear of death. That is what Christians have been freed from, and that is what we celebrate. That's why Easter's a thing. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57 famously say this, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is it? It's gone. <laughs> now, the different gospel writers, in, in your Bibles, there's four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I think one of the reasons why God gave us four different gospel accounts was not only because they were writing to different audiences, and so they tended to emphasize different things about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, but also because when we put all four together, we get the fullest account. Now, these accounts do not conflict in any way, but they oftentimes, we get the fullness of a thing when we put them all together. And all four gospel writers, of course, talk at length about the resurrection of Jesus. And when we put together, when we combine everything that they had to say about that amazing day, that amazing, unforgettable day, to which Matthew and John especially were eyewitnesses, this is what we get. It all began early in the morning. It was a Sunday morning. As a group of women arrived at the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid, 
And we know that they were not expecting to find a living Jesus because what were they carrying? Jars of burial spices to anoint his corpse as part of the burial process. Instead, they find the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. But as strange as that was, things soon got a lot stranger. Angels appeared to them and told them that Jesus was alive, that he had been raised from the dead. The angels instructed the women to go tell the other disciples the good news. The women leave, and Mary Magdalene, another woman, one of their friends and fellow disciple of Jesus, who apparently had not been with the other women, but who had been traveling to the tomb separately and probably with the hope of meeting them there, arrives at the tomb alone after they had left. She also discovers the empty tomb and apparently fears that the body has been taken. But by whom and for what purpose, she does not know. On her own, she decides to go find Peter and John and tell them what she has found. She finds them. And upon receiving news of the empty tomb, Peter and John run to the tomb. And upon arrival, they look into the tomb together and they make a mysterious discovery. Although Jesus' body was missing, the grave cloths, which had been wrapped around his body, were still there, and the face cloth was in a spot removed from the others. John sees these things. And he says in his gospel that he believed that Jesus had indeed been resurrected, but then adds in hindsight that he didn't yet understand all that was happening. Up to this point, none of Jesus' followers have actually seen Jesus in the flesh. But then Mary Magdalene, returning to the tomb a second time after John and Peter have already come and gone, has an encounter with a man who she mysteriously at first cannot recognize. She assumes him to be the gardener. She's upset. She wants Jesus' body back. And apparently she thinks this gardener must have had something to do with it being missing. Or at the very least, he must know where the body is. She demands that this man tell her where the body has been taken. But then Jesus reveals himself to her and she tearfully recognizes him as her Lord. Next, Jesus appears to the first group of women who are still apparently searching out the disciples. Then he appears to two disciples who are walking along the road to Emmaus. Like Mary, they also mysteriously do not at first recognize him, but as they walk along the road with him, their hearts burn within them as he opens the scriptures to them. Then at last they recognize him and he disappears. Then, in the evening of that first Resurrection Sunday, the Bible tells us that all of the disciples, except for Thomas, were gathered together behind locked doors for fear that they would be treated as Jesus had been treated. When suddenly and unexpectedly, they experienced the day's most generous and extended visit with the risen Jesus. Despite the doors being locked, Jesus appeared in their midst. He showed them the holes in his hands inside, the proof of his loving concern for them. Luke, in his gospel account, relates that Jesus ate some fish in their presence as if to demonstrate that he was not a ghost or an apparition, but he was physically real, bodily resurrected. And we are told that the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. You can imagine what an amazing, incredible moment that must have been. Now those are, insofar as the Bible records, the events of the first Easter. On the first Resurrection Sunday, thinking people, as you are thinking, given to critical thought and evaluation, thinking people were confronted with a new thought that would radically change their way of thinking forever. People who were in the midst of pursuits and a way of living would be radically reoriented to live in a way that had not been previously conceived. God surprised everyone on that day in a fantastic, glorious fashion that changed everything forever. And there is one question 
I brought this up a couple weeks ago, and really, as long as I'm in your pastor, you're going to have to just get used to hearing this every Easter. <laughs> there is one question that hangs heavily over our gathering here this morning. And depending on how you answer that one question, what we are doing here today will be either silly, empty, and a complete waste of time. Or it will be joy-filled, deeply meaningful, and the absolute best use of anybody's time anywhere. And there is no in-between. Christianity is either good and right, or it is a wicked hoax. And whether it is the one or the other depends entirely on the answer to one question. And that question is this. Was Jesus really raised from the dead? Did that really happen? We really, all human beings, have to be intellectually honest about this question. Whether they be a believer or a committed atheist. If it didn't happen, fellow Christian, that means we should not be Christians. But entertain this thought if you are not yet a follower of Jesus. If it did happen, what would that mean for you? What does that mean for the world? In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. And in verse 17 of that chapter, he writes this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then he goes on to add that if Christ has not been raised, then we of all people are most to be pitied. If there was no empty tomb, then Christianity is an empty exercise. All of Christianity is built on this one truth claim, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if that's not true, if that's not a fact, then our faith is in vain. And all of our cherished hopes as Christians are just fairy tales and make-believes. Make-make-believe. However... If it did really happen, and I believe it did, if Jesus really was raised from the dead, then our faith and our hopes are not in vain. Our labor is not in vain. The things you have suffered for the cause of Christ were not suffered in vain. And to live in any other way would be to make a complete and utter waste of our lives. And that is just how Paul closes out 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says that because for the whole previous chapter, he lays out the argument for the resurrection of Christ. And John dedicates the final two chapters of his gospel to documenting the evidence for the resurrection. And concludes chapter 20, in which he details several encounters with the resurrected Jesus by saying this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why he tells us about the resurrection, is so that we might believe and that by believing, we might have life in his name. I don't think John exhaustively details all of the proofs for the resurrection. But the other gospel writers and, the writer of, and Luke, the writer of Acts, go on to describe in great detail all the evidences that exist for the resurrection of Jesus. But let's look through a few that John does highlight. The first one that he highlights is the empty tomb. In verses 1 through 10 of chapter 20, we read this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. 
So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I always have to laugh at that moment. John is writing this account, and he wants everyone to know he beat Peter there. (laughs) That really is what's happening in that verse. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes." So the first proof that John offers for us is that he got to the tomb and it was indeed empty. Now I know that raises other questions. There are other reasons why a tomb might be emptied besides a resurrection. But John uh, gives us some clues here to some things that might not be at first uh, something we latch on to, but which were visibly obvious to him at the tomb. And one of those is he spends a lot of time talking about these grave cloths. It was the practice of people who were buried at that time. For example, when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were told in the Gospel of John that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of burial spices with which to, um, what they would do is they'd take these cloths and they'd saturate them in these spices and then wrap the body in the spice-saturated cloths. And 75 pounds, that's a lot. And there must have been an animal involved bringing all that because I was thinking like a five-gallon bucket of water would weigh about 40 pounds. So we're talking about maybe at least two five-gallon bucketfuls of spices, something like that. That's a lot. Maybe there was an animal involved in getting it up there. I don't know. But in any event, what they did was they took these cloths and they saturated those cloths in these spices and wrapped him in it. And so in the time that Jesus laid in the grave, uh, all of that would have sort of caused the the cloths to, I guess for lack of a better word, kind of like get glued together. They would have had a a certain shape. And um, what John is marveling at when he comes to the tomb is that the cloths are there, but the body isn't. I think this is not is something we immediately think when we read these verses, but what he's witnessing is, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Maryland, uh, I don't remember how many years now they would have the cicadas would come through. Do you guys have cicadas here in Aroostook County? I don't know. No? Okay. <laughs> they would have this uh, every few years or so, the cicadas would come, and they're very loud insects. But one of the things I liked as a kid is that when the cicadas would emerge from their exoskeleton, the exoskeleton of this essentially an enormous cricket was left hanging on the side of the tree. It kind of like this uh, translucent yellowish color. And me and my friends would collect them by the bucket full. But it had the exact shape and imprint of the insect on the exoskeleton. And it would emerge leaving this exoskeleton hanging there. And so what John is marveling at is that the cloths are there in the shape, the outline of Jesus, but he's not. And the head cloth, which would have been wrapped tightly around his head, but separate from the body cloth, is also there, also still wrapped, still folded, still how it was, off to the side. And so if we had been in the tomb, and here is a bit of conjecture, the Bible doesn't actually say this, but this is my guess. I don't think it's like Jesus sat up and took the clothes off the cloths off. I think he just disappeared. That's what happened. And what was left was the, for lack of a better word, cicada-like exoskeleton, the empty grave cloths, still in the shape, the deflated shape. And John is like, what in the world is this? 
This is unbelievable. And he believes. So that's the first important evidence that John offers. It's the empty tomb. By the way, the stone of the tomb was rolled away not to allow Jesus to exit. That was no longer necessary. But it was rolled away. Why? So that we could peer in and see that it was empty. Then we come to proof number two. Uh, if you, uh, some of you over the past few years since I've come here have gotten to know me, and one of the uh, things I'm reluctant to share with people but is absolutely true is I'm kind of a, a Bigfoot enthusiast. I like watching documentaries about Sasquatch. Don't judge me, please. I do. <laughs> I know some of you are like, mm, I knew something was off about that guy. I'm not even sure if I believe in Sasquatch. I just enjoy... I don't know what that is. I don't know why I enjoy that. It's kind of weird. But I do know this. I have consumed so many Sasquatch documentaries that whenever they want to have a witness, whenever the producers of the show say, we need to find witnesses for Sasquatch, and they go to whatever town in the Northwest and they are looking around for these witnesses, they love to put people in front of the camera who are what? Credible. They want a policeman, doctors, uh, if there's a soldier, an older person, so people who are credible, believable. They look like they are put together. They don't like to put people, like they don't like children <laughs> particularly. They don't like people who just look on the face of it to be disreputable. Why? Well, because they're not credible witnesses. And so there's really something very interesting in the Bible about who were the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. This is very interesting, and I think it's something that we don't appreciate very much as Americans, living as we do in the midst of a very enlightened culture, perhaps. But the first witnesses to the resurrection were women, which is significant because in that culture at that time, women were not even permitted to testify in court. That's how little weight their opinion held in that day and in that culture at that time. And when the women first reported to the male disciples in the Bible that they had a personal encounter with the risen Jesus, they were not at first believed. They thought it sounded like idle tales. So if this was all a hoax... If this was something, like, like, let's say this. If we were, as a group here at State Road Advent Christian Church, going to create a hoax about a mysterious new cryptozoological creature, you know, like how centaurs have the body of a horse but the torso of a man? Let's have, like, a musitar. <laughs> okay, if we were going to create a musitar, and we were like, okay, so who are we going to put out there to say they were driving down State Road and they saw a musitar? which sounds like a nickname for Mark Tar. <laughs> Musatar, I like it. Who would we put out there as our most credible witness, the one who would be most believed? I know, let's get the kids out of junior church to go to WAGM and tell them about the Musatar that they saw. Now, I'm not likening women to that. But in that culture at that time, that was the perception. That was the cultural understanding. They were not even allowed to testify in court. So low did that culture hold the, the views and opinion of women. And so if the disciples were like, man, we got to create a story about Jesus being raised from the dead, who would they have put out there as the first witnesses to the thing? Probably not people who couldn't even legally testify and who the culture more broadly has so low an opinion of their credibility. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. 
Jesus said to her, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Then Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So this is the second proof that John offers. Not only that people have seen him, but who were the first witnesses? It was these women. Not only Mary, but later also the group of women that I referenced earlier. These are the first to ever have an encounter with the risen Jesus. And that's interesting. The proof number three is that it was a bodily resurrection. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, here I'm reading in verse 24 through 29, was not with them when Jesus came. Now I think this is interesting about Thomas. Uh, Everyone grieves differently. You know, some people when they're grieving, when they've lost somebody, they just want to have everybody they know over to their house. They want to be surrounded by others who are feeling the same way. But other people, it's just the bent of their personality. When somebody dies who was close to them, they just want to lick their wounds in private. And I'm willing to bet that you know some of both. Maybe you're one or the other. Thomas, when all the disciples are gathered together and they're mourning and grieving together, they're supporting one another, where's Thomas? I think Thomas was just kind of like, you know what, I just need some time. (laughs) This This is really hard. I don't even want to be around the scene for a little bit. So Thomas isn't with him, and that's interesting. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You can talk all you want. Unless I stick my hand in the wound, I'm not going to believe it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, one of the reasons why I find this uh, story so wonderful is because not only does it show how an out-and-out skeptic of the resurrection is turned into something else by virtue of having had an encounter with the risen Lord, but it does testify to the fact that Jesus was bodily resurrected. In other words, he wasn't resurrected in a Gnostic sort of way, like he was resurrected in the hearts of everybody who loved him, or he was resurrected in spirit. His spirit carries on in the movement that his followers continued. That's not what Jesus, that's not what happened. There were physical holes. There was his body. Luke records that he ate fish. And what they're trying to convince everyone of is that it was a bodily resurrection. And one of the things I think we can take away from that is this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I can remember when I was a kid, uh, the, the, my earliest memory I can trace. It's really hard to know when was your first memory because it gets fuzzy way back there. And the chronology of when certain things happened are mixed up. But my earliest memory was of our dog dying that I can remember. And my earliest memory is of death. But it wasn't until I was about 11 or so that I had my first real brush in a crushing, awful way with death. And that's when my uncle died. My uncle uh, lived on a cabin. It was a, like a summer camp. 
Um, but in the wintertime, you couldn't get to it on the road, so he would drive on a frozen lake. And he was driving on the lake, his, his car went through and he died. And I can just remember, as a boy, just being destroyed by that. Just gutted. And what Jesus wants me to know, and you to know, is that he was bodily resurrected. And those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, and my uncle was one of those, he put his trust in Jesus for salvation, he is going to be resurrected bodily. He's going he's to come back. <laughs> That's the amazing thing that Christianity claims to be true. And it's based on the fact that Jesus was bodily resurrected. My uncle doesn't live on in my heart, in my memories, any such notion as that. Christians believe in something more robust than that statement. My uncle is alive, and he will be raised bodily on the last day. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The last proof that I want to highlight in, uh, in what John records for us is this. And that is that the the transformation that we see worked in the disciples as the result of having seen the risen Lord. The resurrection worked an incredible change. Beginning in verse 19, we read this, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Mark what Jesus says to these disciples. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This passage begins by informing us that they were behind locked doors. Why? Because they were afraid. They were afraid. They were afraid that what had happened to Jesus would be meted out on them. And if the disciples were ever tempted to make an idol of their fear by allowing it to govern them, I believe these are the words that Jesus chose to confront them. Jesus did not seek to calm their fears by telling them that they were overreacting or that they were imaginary like a child's monster at bedtime. He says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And this wouldn't have calmed their fears at all. With the sights and sounds and emotion just days old of the crucifixion still an open wound in their memory, this would have only confirmed their worst fears. As the Father sent you, look how that worked out. And in the same way you're sending us, yes. So even though their fears were not unfounded, they were real and understandable, even so, just a short while after they were found huddling together behind locked doors, we find them openly proclaiming Jesus in public, even in the temple courts. 
What happened to their fears? Well, we can't discount the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus giving them the Holy Spirit had a radically transforming effect on them. It gave them a capacity for greater courage and obedience than they had had before. And this is true for the church today. For anyone who's put their trust in Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to live in them, and they are given a new, more radical capacity for the mission. However, I would say this about their fears. I suspect that they still carried them, but they were no longer governed by them. They would not only spend their lives testifying to the truth of the resurrection, but they would testify to that truth with their very lives. In so, uh, the history of these men tell us that almost all of them were martyred for the faith. John did not die, but he survived being boiled alive in oil. And what this is telling us is this. They did not get anything for saying Jesus was resurrected in this life. <laughs> I've lied a lot in my life. I have. I think we all probably have, if we're honest. We've all said lies. What's the first rule of telling a lie? Well, it has to benefit you in some way, right? <laughs> right? That's why we lie, to avoid pain, to get something. If the resurrection never happened, and these 12 men just made the whole thing up, what did they get for it? Did they get rich? No. <laughs> did they get power? No. Did they get comfort? No. Did they avoid discomfort? No. Were they wanting to be rejected by all their neighbors, friends, and family? No. Did they want to die a martyr's death? No. What did they have to do to stop the punishment? Just stop talking about it. They didn't even have to renounce it. They could have just walked away and stopped talking about the resurrection, but they didn't. Why? Because it happened. And because they could do no other. There is a dead and powerless sort of Christianity that results when Christians decide to play it safe. And many do not share their faith because they fear the fallout in their professional lives, their social circles, their schools, their family relationships. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you, we've all been sent, fellow Christians, but how far have we gone? If the disciples had not suffered and died because of their bold witness to the resurrection, we might have reason to doubt their claims. We might think, oh, they just said that about Jesus being raised to save face or to get rich or to get out of trouble or so people would think well of them. But what do you do with men who persisted in claiming to have seen the resurrected Jesus even when it brought them so much hardship and pain? And what do you do with these men who persisted in proclaiming this message even though it cost them their very lives? All they needed to do was shut up. And they didn't. Every lie that has ever been spoken has been born of fear. Fear of discovery, fear of loss, fear of harm, fear of disapproval, fear of being alone, fear of pain. You show me an honest person, and I will show you a courageous one. And these disciples were courageous in a way that confirms their honesty to us. Sharing the gospel will always require these two things, courage and honesty. And I'll say another thing. You show me a Christian who is convinced of the truth of the resurrection but is not active in telling others about the hope they personally have in a resurrected Lord, and that person is a liar too. And how can their silence be counted as a lie? 
Well, it's a lie of omission. And like all other lies, it is certainly born of fear. On the evening of that first Easter, Jesus appeared to his disciples who were hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And he said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And fellow Christian, we know that God's plan to reach this lost and dying world with the good news of the resurrection is the church. That is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. For reasons that are mysterious, maybe unknowable, the modus operandi of our God is to do all things through the means of the church. And in Romans 10, it says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they if the, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one on whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. How can they believe unless somebody preaches? How can they believe unless you do it? I think back to my walk through the cemetery earlier this week. It's a sad truth, but if the Lord should tarry, the day will come to us all when our remains will be committed to the earth. And never forget that God is the enemy of death. In John 10, 10, Jesus declared, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. One day our loved ones will gather to remember us. And will that day find us ready to meet God? Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We're all deserving of wrath and judgment and punishment. That is what we deserve. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're all sinners, and the punishment for sin is death. But in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. That's what happened on the cross. So that in him we might become righteousness of God. Jesus took our punishment for our sins on the cross, and we can receive, by faith, his eternal reward. We all die. As it says in Psalm 139, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. But because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, all who put their trust in him by faith and received him into their hearts as Lord and Savior can have hope of eternal life and a restored relationship with God the Father. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Apart from a saving relationship with Jesus, there is no hope of salvation, but only judgment and wrath. John, in John eleven twenty five 25 through 26, Jesus is quoted as saying this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these precious, precious Easter truths. Father, I'm so grateful that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy. Father, as it says, the wages of sin is death. And what is a wage? Well, it's something that we earn and deserve. And the thing that we earned, the thing that we are deserving of is wrath. But God, you are more than just just. You are also good. You're also, ju you're also a God of grace and mercy. 
And Father, you have not repaid us according to what we deserve. Unbelievably, though, you, God, the offended party, took the punishment of the offender. And Father, we know that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, all those who who have put their trust in Jesus, our sins died with Jesus on the cross, and we were raised victorious with him from the grave. At Christmas time, Lord, we celebrated the moment when Jesus entered the arena with death. And Father, now at Easter, we celebrate the moment when he stepped out of the ring victorious. So Father, we thank you for these things. And Father, maybe there is one listening to this online, or maybe even gathered with us here this morning, who over the course of our time together has found has been surprised to find belief springing up in their heart. And they want to know, what do I do about that? Father, they can just by agreeing with this very simple prayer I'm about to pray. Articulate, Lord, that they have come to put their trust in Jesus for salvation. They can pass from death to life and they can become a new creation today on Easter 2021. Dear Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I have fallen short of the glory of God, as have all human beings. My sins are serious. They are grave. Every one of them, Lord, was a rejection of what is right and an embrace of what is wrong. Father, I don't deserve what Jesus did for me, but I cling to it this morning. Father, I embrace the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, as it says in Romans 6.23. And Father, I know that I'm not saved because of what I've done or because of my goodness, as it says in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his love for us in this and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, I know that in this moment, all I am bringing to you is my need. And Father, you are satisfying that need in what Jesus did. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he was resurrected, that literally hundreds of people saw him and testified to the truth of that. Father, I believe that there is life, eternal life can be found in no other place than Jesus. And Father, I... I have put my trust in in him for salvation today. Father, show me, give me the Holy Spirit and show me what my next steps are as a follower of Jesus, a new follower of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, you just became my brother or my sister, and I'd love to meet you as such. (laughs) Amen. Yeah, it would make my year to hear that you just put your trust in Jesus for salvation. I would love to talk to you, pray with you, and share with you what I think the next steps you should take as a follower of Jesus. But if you don't want to talk to me, don't keep it a secret. Tell somebody and find a good church that will build you up in Christ.